Today's show is sponsored by Talkspace, the online therapy company. For a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, you can pick an experienced, licensed therapist you relate to and feel comfortable with. Each and every therapist has at least a master's degree and has completed over 3,000 hours of supervised work. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com forward slash boom. And to show your support for this podcast, use code boom to get $30 off your first month. That's boom. Talkspace.com slash boom. B-O-O-M. You are locked on Rockets. Your daily podcast on the Houston Rockets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Happy weekend, everybody. Welcome back to Locked On Rockets, your home for podcast coverage of the Houston Rockets. I'm your host, Ben DuBose. Today's episode is brought to you courtesy of our friends and sponsors over at SeatGeek. Download the SeatGeek mobile app and enter the promo code LORockets, and you can get a $20 rebate via mail today off of your first purchase from SeatGeek. So as we chat on this Friday, I'm going to be joined momentarily by Brian Geltziler. He's Hoops Critic on Twitter, works with NBA TV, 120 Sports, really good basketball mind from an X's and O's perspective, and been wanting to pick his brain since the Rockets series ended at the end of last week about the things he thinks that Mike D'Antoni should tactically do differently uh, moving forward. I know he wrinkled a few feathers on Twitter last week with the reference to, quote, spreadsheet ball, but I think I understand what he's getting at, and so I'd like to hear his take on, well, A, exactly what he means, and B, what the Rockets can do to fix that. So we're going to be joined by him in just a few minutes. To lead off, I want to kind of recap what we've learned this week from a big-picture NBA standpoint and how it impacts or doesn't impact the Rockets, in my opinion. Uh, obviously, as we talk midday on this Friday, the Warriors are up 2-0 in the Western Conference Finals. The Cavs are up 1-0 in the Eastern Conference Finals. Both the Warriors and Cavs are 19-0 combined in the playoffs and seem predestined for their third straight matchup in the NBA Finals. And how does it impact the Rockets? Honestly, I think it's pretty good. This is where I disagree with a lot of Rockets Twitter. I saw folks before the uh, San Antonio Golden State series saying that the best case result for the Rockets would be for the Spurs to seem competitive and you know really push the Warriors, thereby making the Rockets' loss seem not as bad. Folks, when you lose by 39 in Game Six at home, there's no way without Kawhi Leonard, there's no way to make it not seem bad. I don't care who you're playing. The Rockets just didn't have the energy that night. They seemed beaten by whatever happened in game five. I don't think you're going to shine that up any. It is what it is. I think the way you move on from that is think big picture. Look at the season as a whole. When they were number three in the West, a 55-win team. Flashes of truly elite play. James Harden, the MVP runner-up in all likelihood, in my opinion, still should be the MVP. Mike D'Antoni, almost the lock for coach of the year. So you look at big picture. That's how you move on. I don't think you try and focus on what happened in late in game five and game six at all. I don't think any result can change that. I think the way you move past it is just reminding folks of the big picture. And from that standpoint, I think the Warriors looking as dominant as they are, and to a lesser extent, the Cavaliers too, is good for the Rockets. Because if the bar is that high to where you have to be conceivably a 65-70 win team in terms of quality, I know that neither the Warriors or the Cavaliers won 70 games. Cavs weren't even close, but we know there's a little bit of coasting going on right now. Even if the records don't show it, those are basically 70 win teams. So to even think about competing, you have to team up. You can't really build organically. It's going to take 
joining some truly elite pieces together. And the Rockets, as I said, James Harden, MVP runner-up, Mike D'Antoni, coach of the year. The Rockets have some brilliant individual pieces. And to me, when you look going forward, we know that the Rockets have to have, in all likelihood, another all-star level player to truly compete with teams like Golden State and Cleveland. And so when you see the bar that high, to me, it takes a lot of the NBA out. And the Rockets having some cap room already, and of course they can easily create more because there are so many friendly contracts on that roster, the Rockets have a pretty strong selling pitch. And to me, with the bar that high, the Rockets are one of the few organizations that they can make a compelling pitch and say, hey, Gordon Hayward, if you were to team up with James, you might be able to do some really special things, Harden, Hayward, and then the continued evolution of Clint Capella. Whereas if you stay where you are as the number one, how are you even going to think about competing with the Warriors and Cavaliers? Not saying it's a lock that the Rockets, if they sign Hayward, Blake Griffin, or trade for Paul George, whatever they might be able to do on the market, that that's going to put them in the class of Golden State or Cleveland. But at least you can see a path there. Whereas if those guys stay where they are, there's no path whatsoever. And to me, the Spurs, the Spurs kind of cut against the narrative that's best for the Rockets, in my opinion, because the Spurs are a team that everything is about their culture. We saw it in Game 6 where even without Kawhi Leonard, we saw how dominant they were in Houston. If the Spurs have success, yes, I know it's really hard to replicate what they have. Popovich is an all-time legend as a coach, and he's been doing it for 20 years. But folks, that's a route where if the Spurs were to succeed against the Warriors, you might see teams like, say, Griffin with the Clippers or Hayward with the Jazz say, hey, if we stick together with this group, we can build organically. Eventually, we can get the culture like it is in San Antonio. And even if we don't have the team on paper that a Golden State or Cleveland does, maybe we can build a kind of culture to overcome it. And to me, if the Spurs succeed, that brings more hope around the league. Because in theory, it's easier to build a good culture than it is to find a truly upper echelon talent and recruit them to your city. Now, it's easier to say in theory. Now, in practice, it's harder to do, of course, because there's a reason there's only one team like the Spurs in terms of the culture they've built. But on paper, at least, it's easy to make the sale and say, hey, we're going to do that. You can do that here. Because if you buy that um, the Spurs approach can work, there are no inherent roster limitations. No matter how unlikely, you can say, hey, if we find the right culture, if we have the right coaching, the right chemistry, whatever else, then you might can evolve into a contender. Whereas if we accept the Warriors and Cavaliers premise, it's basically, hey, no matter how good you are from a roster standpoint, unless you have multiple truly elite, all-star, almost MVP level pieces, you can't even think about contending for a ring. So to me, that's where I see the Warriors dominating. I'm not saying I'm actively cheering for the Warriors because that's not fun at all. But as far as the Rockets are concerned and their uh, sales pitch to free agents, which centers around James Harden and Mike D'Antoni, I think you want it, this, the discussion to be about how dominant the Warriors and Cavaliers are and just how high the bar is to reach contention in the NBA. Because for the Rockets with James Harden, I think that benefits them. I don't think you want the Spurs, you know, kind of having this wave of feel-good culture teams, because if that's the narrative, then I think you might see players and thereby their agents buying in a little bit more to the notion of chemistry and culture and trying to replicate what they built in San Antonio. So I know that's probably more fun from a big picture NBA standpoint, but from a Rockets standpoint and what their sales pitch is going to be, I think the Warriors dominating is the best case result. And again, to go back to what I said leading off, I know some would argue that, well, if the Spurs are competitive, that 
somehow makes what happened with the Spurs and the Rockets late in Game 5 and in Game 6 a little more tolerable. Folks, I don't buy that at all. It's not tolerable. It was terrible. You just have to move on by looking at the big picture. I don't think there's any result that the Spurs can put out there or not put out there that's going to um, shine up that turd. Pardon the expression. It, it, it is what it is, and you just move on from it by looking at what you did over the full season and then, of course, working your butt off over the offseason, both from a personnel standpoint as well as the coaches, the players, the guys that are going to be in the lab, in the well, say the lab, basically the gym, uh, working on their games. The only way you move past it is to go out and uh, use it as fuel to move forward. There's no way that the Spurs result is demonstrably going to change the narrative of what happened late in that series. It is what it is, and as far as the Rockets building the best team, the best roster they can for contention, I think the Warriors and Cavaliers being as dominant as, as they are is uh, pretty good for Houston, big picture. Other thing that happened this week was the draft lottery, and it was kind of a non-event. I would say uh, biggest storyline, the Lakers kept their pick. Um, they're drafting number two overall. Seems like a decent shot at Lonzo Ball staying in L.A. Um, Lakers are a Western Conference heavyweight. At some point, it doesn't sound like it will be this year. At some point, they're going to dip their toes into free agency. So ideally, I uh, would have loved seeing them lose their pick. But I really don't think they're a threat to this generation of the Rockets. I know you hear occasional stories here and there that, well, James and Russell Westbrook have L.A. ties and the Lakers might go after you know Westbrook or Harden in a 2018-2019 free agency. I don't really see them as a threat, especially for James. The roster is just too young right now. Um, you look at the pieces that are already there, and then even if you add Lonzo Ball this year, you're talking about a bunch of 19-, 20-year-old kids, whereas Harden's going to be 29, 30 years old. I don't really see that as a threat to win now. Now, I think five or six years from now, the Lakers are getting the pieces to be um, a, a real contender when they – pair this young talent with whoever they ultimately lure in free agency. I think long-term with Magic kind of bolstering their relationship with NBA agents again, I do think the Lakers are going to become a destination franchise, but um, I don't think it's really going to threaten this iteration of the Rockets, this James Harden in the prime of his career, Mike D'Antoni. I think we're talking more five, six years, and, well, though it's unfortunate, I think we already knew the Lakers are not going to stay down for 10, 20 years. It's not going to be anything like that. It's way too big of a market. There's way too much pedigree. Eventually, they're going to come back. Um, this helps them a little bit, but I don't see in the next two or three years them really being a threat uh, to the Rockets, uh, obviously not on the court, and not even in regards to a potential James Harden free agency. I just think that roster is uh, far too young to get the level of contention that James Harden approaching 30 is going to want. And other than the Lakers keeping their pick, um, as far as regional rivals went as best as it could, uh, Dallas did not move up. Hilariously, if Dallas had uh, not won late in the year, I think they were one game away from tying uh, Sacramento for the eighth worst record in Sacramento's pick and ended up going to Philly, but Sacramento's pick ended up in the top three. So the Mavs were, uh, at least in terms of the lottery combinations that came out uh, with those ping pong balls, the Mavs were pretty close, but they didn't get it. They stayed in the nine spot. Pelicans did not move up, which means the Pelicans lost their pick to the Sacramento Kings as part of the DeMarcus Cousins trade. So really the Mavs with a number nine pick uh, that's probably not a star-level player. Uh, Pelicans losing their pick altogether. Uh, those are your immediate rivals in the division, as well as geographically teams that, in theory, can offer uh, pretty similar um, 
markets to what Houston has. New Orleans is smaller, of course, but I would say Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins, in theory, that could be an attractive situation with the young talent, but neither of them got a big boost, and as far as I'm concerned with the Rockets, that's about as much as you could hope for. The Lakers, it's a little disappointing, but well, folks, they had a 50-50 shot of keeping a pick no matter what, so I'm not buying into any conspiracies. It was 50-50, the bounces went their way, but really the Lakers aren't going to be a big threat to the Rockets over the short term, regardless, in my opinion. So, as I see it, that's all that's really gone on in the NBA this week as it pertains to the Rockets. Now we're in a holding pattern. Uh, game two between the Celtics and Cavaliers tonight. Game three between the Warriors and Spurs Saturday. And as I said, as boring as it is for the league, I think the Warriors and Cavaliers dominating is best for the Rockets. And who knows, maybe we'll even get a great uh, NBA Finals out of it too. I, I think we definitely deserve it after how terrible the NBA playoffs have been as a whole, at least from a fan entertainment standpoint. Now to talk more about uh, the Rockets in general and some of the things that they should do to, well, potentially compete with teams like the Warriors and Cavaliers. I'm going to be joined in just a few moments by Brian Geltseiler. You know him as the Hoops Critic. He's from NBA TV, 120 Sports. He's going to be on the phone in just a minute. But for now, I do want to pause and acknowledge our wonderful sponsors over at SeatGeek because sponsors like them are a big part of how we're able to bring this show to you so frequently. We're now over 200 episodes in the last nine plus months. And as far as SeatGeek is concerned, Guys, you know I'm a huge fan of them because if you want to buy tickets to sports, concerts, the secondary market is the way to go. Here in Houston, I know the Rockets season is over, but folks, that just means you've got the Astros who have by far the best record in baseball. And well, starting tonight, they've got a 10-game homestand. And so if you want to go see them or any other concert, typically SeatGeek or any secondary source is the way to go. Because the thing is, if you buy directly from the box office, these days, 90% of the box office and pretty much all of them in Houston, they use what's called dynamic pricing. They look at demand, and certainly the Astros playing this well, they're going to use as an excuse to jack up the tickets artificially high. So the way to beat the system is to go through the secondary market sources because oftentimes their uh, tickets are provided by season ticket holders who are selling from a lower rate, and thus you're likely to get a better rate than by buying directly through the box office. And while if you go through the secondary market, to me, SeatGeek is the easy choice. They compare all the websites so you know you're getting the best deal. They also grade every ticket from 1 to 100, so you know you're getting the best bang for your buck. They do the cross comparisons, and so you can uh, buy with confidence knowing that you're getting the best deal that you can possibly get uh, for the game or concert that you want to go to. And the best part of it, you guys, as my listeners here at Lockdown Rockets, y'all all get a $20 rebate off of your first SeatGeek purchase, and it's so easy. To get that, here's what you do. Download the SeatGeek app, Go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, then enter the promo code LORockets. From there, SeatGeek will send you $20 in the mail after you've made your first ticket purchase. So remember, download that SeatGeek app and enter the promo code LORockets today, and you can start saving uh, $20 via rebate off of your first ticket purchase from SeatGeek. Again, LORockets is the code. So with that said, let's jump fully back into the show. Brian Geltzeiler, you know him as Hoops Critic on Twitter, he's on the line, so let's get uh, right to him and start talking a little bit about, uh, quote, spreadsheet ball and the Rockets as they move forward towards the 2017-2018 season. All right, now we're on with Brian Geltzeiler, you know him as Hoops Critic on Twitter, also from NBA TV, uh, Sirius XM Radio. Brian, how's it going today, buddy? Good, Ben, how we doing? Uh, as well as you could in Houston, I would say. Things are definitely better now than last Friday, because this time last week, coming off that Game 6, uh, it was not fun at all down here. Um, I mentioned before you came on air, one of the little scraps you got in, and I knew you were just having a little bit of fun, and some folks take it too seriously, but towards the end of that Houston-San Antonio series, 
you referred to uh, one of Houston's problems and probably a contributing factor to the loss as something called spreadsheet ball. So I'm going to dive right into that immediately. What did you mean by that? And, you know, what's the role in your eyes of uh, basically what that played in the Rockets' loss? Yeah, that tweet was totally taken to mean a lot of things that it didn't mean. Yeah. You know, and it was very interesting because Jesse Blanchard uh, at Bebo Breakdown did a piece that kind of embodied the tweet that I had. Listen, this was, it was not an assault on analytics, be calling it spreadsheet ball. Mm-hmm. 30 teams in the league use analytics. Everybody uses it to a different level, and everybody uses it in their own way, in their own context. But everybody in the league uses analytics. Analytics are to stay. It's, it's, you know, in a lot of ways, it's how the league functions. And I don't think even us in the media have an idea to the extent of how it's all used. What I meant by spreadsheet ball was the way the Rockets totally blow off the mid-range. That as far as they're concerned, you're playing a game beyond the arc and in the paint. And I go back to something that Jeff Hornacek had said on NBA radio in, a, in an interview a couple of years back when he was coaching the Phoenix Suns. And I thought it was a, it was a very important thing to, to discuss in reference to, you know, how you're going to take what's on the spreadsheet and put it on the basketball court. And what he essentially said was this. You need to, no matter how much you want to look at the math in reference to threes and shots in the paint do for you, if you're going to want to advance in the playoffs far, you're going to need to have a team that's proficient at hitting mid-range shots. Because when you get up against the best defenses the league has to, has to offer you, that may be the only shots that they give you. And what happened in this series to the Rockets, they not only were not proficient in the mid-range, they weren't interested. Mm. And the thing is, for the Spurs, a defense that's as good as the San Antonio Spurs, and don't get me wrong, the Spurs defense has flaws, but with a defense as good as the San Antonio Spurs, to give them an area of the floor, a significant, meaningful area of the floor, that they don't have to worry about defending was a gift. And the Spurs were aggressive beyond the arc. They were aggressive in the paint. You saw the way that Popovich layered his two bigs. Aldridge was hedging very hard out high beyond the three-point line. Pagasol anchored himself to the paint, which is the only place he really can be effective because he's wearing cement shoes on the perimeter to pick and roll yeah. at this stage of his career. Okay, He layered them both twice and invited the Rockets to take mid-range shots that the Rockets never took. And everything the Rockets took in the last couple of games of that series was totally contested. So when I refer to spreadsheet ball, that's what I'm referring mm-hmm. to. Am I saying that the Rockets should take every bit of analytics they've ever used to design an offense and throw in the garbage? Of course not. But what I am saying is that at one point or another, you're going to have to develop a mid-range game with your team because you may not need it for 82 regular season games, but you're going to get in the playoff series because the playoffs are a different animal, Ben. You're going up against the team night after night after night after night. There's a familiarity that develops in how you defend a team and how you adjust. Very different from the regular season. So that mid-range game, listen, you can go ahead and win 55 games without taking any mid-range shots. We saw the Rockets do it this year and had a super regular season. And listen, you got by against an OKC team. I mean, you beat them in five games, so it wasn't like uh, it wasn't like you scraped by. But they beat an OKC team not having to play that way. But you get against the best of the best, you're going to have to have them to complement it, and that's something the Rockets just haven't quite got to. I don't know that they will get to. I'm, I'm not sure. You know, I'm identifying it as a problem. I don't know that they're identifying it as a problem. Well, they're at least identifying it partly, I would say. One of the common themes that we heard several times from Mike D'Antoni after the game and then uh, in the exit interviews the following day was this reference to installing more layers of the offense. And so he didn't 
he didn't single out the mid-range, mid-range game specifically, but one thing he did single out, for example, is initiating the offense in different ways. Whereas right now, and that's another thing the Spurs locked onto, was the hard and high pick and roll. He mentioned the potential, uh, and of course maybe this will be accompanied by personnel changes, who knows, but potential to have Harden off the ball more. And uh, generally just get into their offense in different ways, and as he said it, install more layers. And so I think where that has a common theme with what you're saying about the mid-range is that by the playoffs, especially for a great coach like Greg Popovich, the Rockets' offense was predictable. Is that a fair assessment? No doubt. It was very predictable. And listen, I don't know. I mean, keep in mind, they tried this, like, the ball out of James Harden's hand experiment when they brought in Ty Lawson. And granted, some failings of Ty Lawson, Harden didn't want the ball out of his hands. Mm. And the thing about James Harden that's important to understand not every superstar is cut out to play with other superstars. Some guys are just, you know, guys who function best as the single star on the team with very good complementary pieces that fit him well around him. I think that's going to be more James Hart. I don't know if it's practical to expect to diversify this offense by pulling the ball out of James's hands. I do believe, though, that everybody's got to be a little more proficient at hitting mid-range shots. And in pick-and-roll situations, those have to be mm-hmm. shots that become good options. And I do think we do need to see the Rockets incorporate maybe a little bit more pick-and-pop into their game. Now, and what's that going to require? Well, you know, listen, you, you mentioned personnel upgrades, and I think personnel upgrades are necessary. When I talk to people around the league, in reference to the Rockets' issues and where they need to upgrade, the one common name that continues to come up is Ryan Anderson. Mm-hmm. Ryan Anderson, is he's a nice player, and, I, and I'm not bagging on him making him the poster child for everything that went wrong with the Houston Rockets this season, but the reality of the situation is that he's a, a major negative on the defensive end of the floor. And it's not because he doesn't work hard, it's because he's not a good defensive player. Yeah. Uh, when you want to play smaller lineups, you're ill-equipped to be able to have any kind of interior defense when Ryan Anderson's your big on the floor. That's absolutely a problem. You'd like to see a little more diversity out of his game that goes beyond the three-point shot. So that's a spot where they potentially can upgrade. The good news for them is that you know it's a salary I didn't love at the time, but at three years and $60 million, there would be teams that would say, hey, let's take a shot with this guy because we do know he can stroke it from deep. Good guy to have around a team. But that's where I see that they need a little bit of an adjustment in terms of personnel. Plus, again, you're going to have to incorporate some mid-range, some sets that produce mid-range shots, at least to be able to, because we saw it here in this series. Spurs don't have to worry about the mid-range. They can be so aggressive out on the arc and plant, do that at the same time and plant a guy in the paint. And they didn't have to worry about it. So I do think that diversifying their offensive game is going to help them be on the arc and help them in the paint and open the entire floor up for them when they do play against great defenses. Of course, having guys with more diverse offensive games certainly would help. Anderson certainly a spot that I identify where they can upgrade. Yeah, and I'm really intrigued to hear, you know, he has three years, $60 million left. And of course, at face value, that's a lot of money, but we're all adjusting uh, psychologically to the new cap environment and these salaries. And so it sounds like that you don't think that's a total albatross deal. You do think there are teams that might see that maybe not as a positive value, but at least as not enough of a negative contract that you could still see uh, certain teams having interest in him. It's lesser of evils, Ben. Okay. So in other words, if you're trying to get rid of a bad deal, mm-hmm. you may say, hey, we'll take this deal in lieu of our bad deal and throw an gotcha. asset their way to attach to the bad deal. Do you know what I mean? Like that yeah. kind of thing. 
I, yeah. I don't think it's necessarily an albatross because here's the thing you remember about Anderson. His style does fit how the league's playing right now. Yes, it does. You know, it, it's this is a this is a guy with good size can stroke it from deep. And the other thing is this: he's not, he's not the worst rebounder in the world. He'll go and scrap and get rebounds. Sure. His work ethic on the floor is something that's a net plus for him. The problem for him is that, you know, I mean, he's slower than me. And, and that's the, yeah. I, I'm, I'm 48 years old and overweight, okay? He's that slow. And that's a problem. You pull him out onto the perimeter on the defensive end of the floor, and it's even a problem when you close out on him on the arc because there's not much of an off-the-dribble game there either. With that said, again, the, the ability to shoot it at, at 6'10 for him with some rebounding skill, it's going to have some value out there to somebody somewhere along the line. Are you going to get a lot of value for it? Probably not. But my, but I, I think for the Rockets, they're going to be active in the free agent market yeah. with guys like Millsap and Ibaka and seeing if they can get in a mix with those guys. And then with the thought of, okay, if we get one of those guys to agree, then we'll find a place for Anderson. We don't even need to be back. We just got to find somebody to take them. And I don't think it's really difficult. Yeah, th- that's good to hear because you look at the Rockets, that's the one contract that I'm uncertain about. You have these other guys, almost everyone is a net positive. That's one thing that Daryl's done really well is almost everyone has a net positive contract. So you've heard names like uh, Lou Williams, Trevor Ariza as possibilities because certainly there'd be interest in them at their salaries. However, the flip side is they're you know pretty significant contributors, Ariza defensively, to what you have now. So if you could move Anderson's, even if you have to attach a minor asset to it, um, that's definitely, I would agree, a huge upgrade spot because the Rockets need more two-way production. I think in theory they'd love for Sam Decker to kind of evolve into that option, but um, that's certainly a gamble. You don't know how he's going to pan out. I think short-term, yeah, the guys you mentioned, Millsap, Ibaka. Also, I was reading uh, Matt Moore over at CBS, his free agency preview piece this morning. Uh, he pointed out Danilo Gallinari, because Gallinari and D'Antoni have a history, uh, Rudy Gay also. I think they would fit that same mold. They're a little bit different, of course, than Millsap and Ibaka, who are a little more traditional power forwards. But either way, I think the principle is fairly similar in that you're looking for a power forward who has at least some floor spacing ability, which Ryan Anderson had, but gives you more uh, more athleticism, more two-way potential. Is that kind of what you're getting at? It is, and, and Gallo's an interesting player because Gallo is very versatile. Um, he's the thing about Gallo that would be very attractive to Houston. He's wonderful at getting to the free throw line. He's always done a very good job of that in his career, and he's a capable defender on the perimeter. Where you get a little nervous about Gallo is that listen, he ain't opting out for less money here, Ben. You know what I mean? He's going to look to have a deal where that made the worth Ryan Anderson's, and somebody may give it to him because of his ability to shoot the basketball. So it's you have that and the injury stuff with Gallo. He's really it's been a struggle for him to stay healthy, but when he's healthy, he's terrific. He's great. So yeah, to me that's a very interesting name. Um, you know, again, Millsap, Ibaka, also interesting names. Rudy Gay, I worry about a little bit, mm-hmm. and and the reason I worry about him is because you have an injury like Rudy Gay had, you wonder about his foot speed. True. Cover any of that when you need him to recover that. So to me, that's a major major issue revolving around him but listen the other three are interesting they're going to cost a lot of money but I guess listen I think for the Rockets you saw where you could go this year with just having James and having these other pieces around them and as well as it worked 
with Anderson and with Eric Gordon, you need more. And I don't mean more in terms of more players. I think you need more in terms of what you upgrade and, and, and the spots that you upgrade. Because here's the other thing that you have to remember. And listen, Les Alexander's not shy about spending money. Never mm-hmm. has been. And I don't think he ever will be. But the reaction to some of these deals on their books, okay, going into next year, 17, 18, okay, you know, Ariza's making, I mean, a re- Ridiculous low amount of money yep. at seven point four million next year, and it's the last year of a deal. Now, what are you going to do with him after that? I, it's a good question because he's getting older. So you wonder, are you going to want to re-up him at the kind of numbers that he's going to command on the open market? I don't know that you do. Um, I mean, they're out from under Nene next year, but that's worth less than three million dollars. I mean, it's mm. not a lot of money. So it, it's. And, and here's the other thing, and this comes back to D'Antoni a little bit when you look at next year. He's really going to have to – he made such a mistake in game five. You don't play Harrell and Decker. And I, I don't know necessarily that the San Antonio series was the best series for Montrez Harrell, so I don't kill him on that. But you don't play Decker all the minutes you played him in the regular season, okay? Mm. And then at that point in time, decide not to use him in those spots in the playoffs. I mean, you got to. You got to. You have to. And, and that's and you see the difference between that and San Antonio. Listen, Pop had situations to use DeJounte Murray. When push came to shove in the playoffs, and Tony Parker got hurt and needed a point guard. He didn't hesitate. Murray's out yep. there playing minutes. And, and it doesn't have to be, you know, 30 minutes, 12, 14 minutes. Okay. He's out there playing. Listen, Jonathan Simmons is a guy they've been developing for years. In a big spot, Pop didn't hesitate. He put him right out there on the floor. John, you know, say what you want about what's happened with San Antonio in the absence of Leonard. It ain't on Jonathan Simmons. He's played really well in these yeah. playoffs. My point is, is you use these guys in a regular season. At one point or another, that apprenticeship has to get them the job. And I thought both of those guys performed well enough, certainly Sam Decker, that he has earned and warranted some playoff minutes when the stakes are the highest. And D'Antoni kind of defaulted to who he knew and what he knew in terms of vets he was more comfortable with. And I thought that was a strategy, you know, having your bench be that short in these type of spots in the playoffs that absolutely backfired. See, Brian, that's one of the themes that I've kind of come back to a lot over the last week. We tend to look at the San Antonio series, you know, in isolation because I know everybody kind of build it as a, you know, a big showdown, that kind of thing. But the reality for the Rockets, it's been a while since they were, you know, truly a consistent, a consistently elite team. Like if you break down their season, you can almost cut it right down the middle. They started 31-9, and and that 31-9 and start actually included the first three weeks when Pat Beverly was still out. He had a uh, knee scope in training camp. When Beverly came back, they actually went 25-4. and in their next 29 games. And then the last half of the year, the last 42, they were just 24 and 18, which is basically a like a 47-win pace. And you look at, you know, there's so many angles. You say, okay, why were they so strong the first half of the season? And the second half of the year, they basically just lived on reputation is the best way to put it. And a lot of us made excuses, you know, minor injuries. Uh, their, their seed was locked up, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, after early January, they did not have another stretch of consistently strong ball. And so I went back... What I did, I looked at those first 40 games and said, what do they have going there? And there are a lot of things. Uh, as you said, Decker and Harrell clearly had bigger roles in the first half of the year than the second. And, you know, D'Antoni, they might argue and say, well, the league made some adjustments to them, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's really indisputable. The Rockets were a better team when Decker and Harrell were uh, parts of the rotation and the rotation was deeper. Other thing that I think we talked about earlier, Brian, D'Antoni's system. I think the first 40 games, there's probably some uniqueness to it. That style, and I think the longer the teams around the league got a look at what D'Antoni was doing in Houston, 
the more they adjusted. And, you know, you still had occasional games from time to time where the Rockets were just red hot from the perimeter, but they weren't getting the consistency of quality looks that they did early in the season. Basically, coaches made adjustments to him, and then Tony didn't properly, uh, or at least didn't fully adjust back. The final theme, you know, those are two that we've kind of talked about on this show already. The final theme that I want to get your take on is the Eric Gordon factor. Because I broke it down. You look at those first 40 games, Eric Gordon was a borderline all-star level player. Now, maybe not in how loaded the Western Conference is now, but Gordon, first 40, he's averaging 18 points a game, over 41% from three, 43% from the field. And then to flip it, the last 40 and then in the playoffs, he was essentially, at best, a volume shooter. Guy shot 37% from the field, below 33% from three. And so if there's one thing I would might disagree and push back a little bit on on you, Brian, it's your characterization earlier of um, Harden playing with other stars. Eric Gordon, he's not quite a star-level player, but I think it proved that when Gordon was at his best, and that was a fringe all-star level for the first 40 games, I thought he and Harden did have some really good synergy. They played well together. And then for whatever reason, injuries, fatigue, whatever it may be, Gordon fell off. So to me, as I look at this offseason, a big priority, I'd love to hear your take on that, any guy they get, and it can be a big guy, the names we talked about before, Millsap, Ibaka, Gallinari, Gay, that type, or it can be a perimeter guy. But the Rockets need to get maybe not a star, but someone in that number two role that is more consistent that, than the options they had this year. And I'm curious your take on that. Well, let's, let's start with the, the pushback. Because, listen, Gordon had a great first half of the year. But there's a reason that they got Eric Gordon at, you know, $14 million a year, $14 million a year, Ben. He's not a star. And he's a guy that struggled to stay healthy. And even when he's on the floor, I mean, is he useful? He's extremely useful. He works hard defensively and he's an excellent shooter. Um, but I, he's actually the kind of role player I'm talking okay, about. Okay, He's, you know, an, an upgraded, you know, a, a very good role player that can play the role you want him to play really, really well. So, you know, so from that standpoint, yeah, it's exactly, that's kind of, you kind of, made, in pushing back, you kind of help me make my case. Fair. You know what I mean? See, because that, that, that's the kind of guy you want. Here's the thing. I don't know that you need another perimeter-dominant type of player to go with, okay. with heart. I think that you need a four that's going to be a good complement to Capella. Okay. In a lot of ways, I think Ibaka's the right guy. Okay. Because, because but here's the thing. All right, so, you know, the Rockets were 18th in the league in defense. All right, now some of that is pace-related. We know that. Some of that is you play an open-floor style, you're going to give up. You know, you're just not going to be the greatest defensive team in the regular season. Uh, you know, not everybody can do what the Warriors do defensively. But here's the other thing. Personnel-wise, you had a lot of weak defensive players on the floor. Listen, for all of James's effort on the defensive end, and he dropped off a little late and certainly didn't have a wonderful – uh, a wonderful playoff defensively in any way, shape, or form. Mm. But that's the guy you got to compensate for and worry about. Anderson is an absolute weak link on that end of the floor. There's no doubt about it. So, and then you go to your bench. You know they brought in Lou Williams. Nothing wrong with bringing in Lou Williams. Lou Williams, I thought. You know, you know, I was very high on that addition yep. for them. But let's face it, he's not exactly a defensive stopper. Mm. So, to me, if you went ahead and got Ibaka, the Ibaka-Capella front line, the shot-blocking ability there, and listen, Ibaka is going to be overpaid. 
Let's get it all out there right now. He ain't going to be a value signing then. But you know what? If I'm the Rockets and I want to upgrade that spot, i got to pick somebody to overpay. And if I'm going to do that, my decision is, do I want the shot blocker or do I want the guy that will defend the perimeter a little better? And the guy that will defend the perimeter a little better is going to be Millsap. You know, do you take the Gallinari risk? To me, Gallinari is a third choice because of the injury stuff. Okay. And if you have to, you go out and you get him. But I don't know that you want to you know, invest more money in him than you invested in Anderson only to have you have to worry about injuries a lot more. But to me, I think a box is the most attractive because, again, you want the, – the thing with the Rockets here when it came playoff time, there was zero defensive identity, none whatsoever, to a point where Mike D'Antoni was going with three-guard units the large majority of the time with the thought of just, hey, our best chance is to outscore people. We saw how that works against the best teams in the league. It's not going to work. You're going to have to have a way to get stops, and you have to develop a defensive identity. Now, listen, part of your defensive identity will always be the animal that Patrick Beverly is, the guarding 90 feet, the irritant, and the hustle and the work ethic. You'll get all that. A reason not as good as he once was in the defensive end because the years have caught up with him a little bit, still fine there. But if you were able to bring two big-time shop lock, Kabaka and Capella, all of a sudden you're a team now that has a great ability to protect the rim with some good perimeter guys. There's an identity. And and so that's why I would say if you can find a way to get Ibaka on board, and I think is going to be in play because I'll tell you something, if Kyle Lowry doesn't go back to Toronto, I think Toronto pulls back on bringing Ibaka back. I do, and mm-hmm. I think he's going to be in play. To me, that would be the best fit. Good take. Brian, last question for you, and this is you know trying to get your national assessment you all season long, you've been a big advocate of Harden as MVP of the league. You've strongly been in his corner. I think, you know, last year you didn't hesitate to give him criticism when it was due, but this year you've clearly uh, been a Harden guy, and you said as much on my show uh, several times. So I'm just curious, your assessment, how much damage in your eyes did those, I shouldn't say the last two games, because he's actually brilliant in the first half of Game 5, uh, the fourth quarter and overtime of Game 5, and then whatever happened in Game 6, what is your sense of James Harden right now? Did, did that put a cloud over his season, or do you just look at it as, say, a bad game, and then you have faith in him to turn it around uh, next season? No, I, I think it's somewhere in between. Okay. Um, I'll say this. You know, listen, I had a conversation last week with my buddy Rick Hamlin, who you know from NBA TV mm-hmm. and NBA on TuneIn, and Rick thought it, had, was, it affected Harden's legacy like it was that bad. Um, I don't go that far. Okay. And, and, but I do say this. You know, Kamala referred to him. He said, there's need to win guys and want to win guys. Harden's a want to win guy. Um, doesn't, you know, when push comes to shove, he doesn't feel that motivation, that need to have to go win. Um, and I think, I think that is true. It doesn't mean he can't become a need to win guy. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, to me, what I saw out of James is a guy that needs to grow up. He does. Okay. He needs to grow up. Because what James Harden failed to grasp at the end of the series. There was unhappiness in it, in, from his uh, his standpoint. In D'Antoni, and if I'm Mike D'Antoni, I'm not buying green bananas starting next season because, it, you know, it, some of James's unhappiness and the rumblings I've heard in reference to that um, from multiple sources, by the way, uh, is, is something that is, you got to keep in mind, not happy with how Mike operated what he needed to operate towards the end of that series. And, and I think for James, he's got to understand this point. When you're a star player, you're not going to win because of everyone around you. There are times that you're going to have to figure out a way to win in spite of some around you, whether it's teammates, whether it's a coaching staff, whatever. You got to. There's things that you're going to have to conquer that are actually your side of the ball. 
and you got to conquer them. You, it has to, well, you have to block out noise. You have to understand something. You're never going to have control over every part of the process. Okay, there's only one guy in the league that has that, and that's LeBron James. No one else does, and no one else is going to. you got to have some trust in other people, and when it doesn't go your way, when they don't do it the way you want it done, you have to push through that. James has not grasped that quite yet. Listen, the Rockets have pushed their chips to the middle of the table with James Harden. They're all in on him. They're all on this side. And that's one of the reasons D'Antoni on a three-year deal needs to be real careful here early on. Mm. You know, and it's funny because I heard a lot of people that turned around and wanted to criticize D'Antoni in the respect that, well, when James was showing that gross lack of effort in game six, he should have benched him. I totally disagree. Uh, right. I think maybe he should have prodded him a little harder. You couldn't bench him. Well, I'm the last guy to benched him in a big spot. And, and you know, in, in game six of the uh, second round series against the Clippers. Yeah. yeah, they won that series and moved to the conference finals. 11 games into the next season, Kevin McHale got a pink slip. So, uh, you know, it's, I get it that, Jane, that, that you know, D'Antonio understands that in a lot of ways, he's working for James Harden. James Harden's not working for him. Mm-hmm. And so I, I get where that's coming from. But James, in that respect, I think has to take on a little bit more of that responsibility and with the understanding that in a partnership, not everything is going to please you all the time, but you have to sometimes make up for a partner and bridge a gap between them where you don't agree about something, and maybe you'll never agree, but you cannot let that be something that becomes a major, major hangover to the point where it totally affects your effort on the floor in a big-time elimination game. Here's one other item, independent of James, Ben, and and this is something I, I hesitate to say, but I also think it's important. Okay. And I'm not blaming, this is not me putting blame on the Rockets fans, but we've seen a lot of games in these playoffs. And I just did think that the energy level in the was very, very low in game six. And you had not a lot of people sitting in seats when the game started. And I get the fact that a lot of your, and I'm using air quotes, your real fans are sitting up top and it's filled up top and they're screaming and yelling. But you know what? You can hear it. And and the energy of the building sometimes comes from the lower bowl. And the lower bowl is have more casual fans that can afford those types of very expensive seats in playoff games. I get it. But I do think the fans that are in those seats got to do a better job of being there and lending some energy because I, I listen, I'm not saying that the fans are the reason the Rockets lost by 39 points in the elimination game. Yeah. But, a little more of a hand than they did that day. Yeah, and, and that's a fair point. Actually, I, I think it was pretty telling. I had uh, Tad Brown, the CEO, on the other day, and, um, and he said on my show, he, he admitted that he and Les had had discussions that very day about moving the game times back next year from 7 to 7.30 for that very reason because they, they realize it's a factor. Now, it's not all as simple as moving the game times. Certainly in the playoffs, it's not even in your control. That's all set by the league and their broadcast partners. But um, I think the Rockets definitely realize that it's an issue, and so they're trying to do what they can. But, yeah, certainly some of it's on the fans as well. They just need to get better. And, yeah, you're right. What happened early in Game 6 was just embarrassing. And, you know, if you have a team that's already mentally fragile and out of it, and then you add in an arena that feels dead, well, that's a, uh, you know, it's not why you lose by 39. It's certainly not an excuse. But the other side, it definitely does not help either. Brian, thank no, you. No, it did not. Yeah. It didn't. Yeah, Brian, thank you so much for the time. Um, folks, if you're not already following him already, you can do that at Hoops Critic. And Brian, I know you're busy these days covering, well, the teams that are still playing in the playoffs, which we all thought would be the Rockets, but unfortunately, um, they're not. It's the Warriors and Spurs tomorrow night. But obviously, you're doing a lot of work. Uh, just tease to where people can find you. Obviously, TV, radio, all the outlets you're doing good stuff with these days. Well, thanks. Appreciate that, Ben. I'm going to be uh, on SiriusXM NBA Radio. I'm doing pregame for 
Game 2 of the Eastern Conference Finals. It's Friday night. It'll be on 7 to 8 p.m. Uh, Sirius XM Channel 86. Um, Saturday, Sunday morning, 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time, also on Sirius XM Channel 86. be hosting my own show with my partner Mitch Lawrence on NBA Radio. Monday night, you'll be able to get me on NBA TV as a preview uh, game four of the Western Conference Finals in San Antonio. Um, I'll be on NBA TV from 8 to 9 Eastern and then do a pregame again Thursday night from 7 to 8.30 on NBA Radio for game, I believe that'll be game four of the Eastern Conference Finals. You can also catch me sporadically a couple times a week on The Rally on 120 Sports, which streams live on Twitter. Normally my hits are 9.30 and 11.30 Eastern time there as well. Excellent. Well, Brian, thank you so much for the time, and I'm sure I'll uh, catch up with you again as we get closer to July 1st and the Rockets start uh, getting closer to going after some of the guys we talked about today. So anyway, have a good weekend. It's always my pleasure, and I look forward to it, pal. Yep, sounds good. That's Brian Geltzeiler. As always, you can find him NBA TV, Sirius XM Radio, uh, 120 Sports. I think we gave him plenty of plugs, but he's a great follow on Twitter as well, at HoopsCritic. So, it's been a pretty full show today, so I'll wrap up. Uh, before we go, I, the one thing I left off in our lead, James Harden was named as an All-NBA player yesterday to the first team after not being on any of the three teams a year ago. So, congratulations to James. Obviously, he deserved it. Uh, great overall season for him. But as I said, leading off the show, that ties into the broader narrative, which is focus on the season as a whole. There's still a lot for the Rockets to sell. They have some great individual pieces, certainly an All-NBA uh, first-team award. And, well, he's going to end up... Uh, second in the MVP voting, that goes to show you that there's a uh, pretty strong core in Houston that you can build on moving forward. So I know it was inevitability. You have a season like James had. Of course, he's going to be uh, first team All-NBA. But after the week he's had getting beaten in the media ever since Game 6 last week, I think it's good to get a little bit of positive press. And so I want to make sure that we acknowledge that here on Lockdown Rockets as well. So with that said, I hope you guys enjoy your weekend. And, well, I'll be back next week to talk a little bit more about uh, what offseason moves the Rockets can make to further bolster their core around James Harden. Until then, if you're not already following me on Twitter, you can do that at Ben Dubos. Follow the show on Twitter at Lockdown Rockets. And also email us, LockdownRockets at gmail.com. If you've got questions or suggestions for me, or if you'd like to inquire about becoming a potential sponsor of this program, just as SeatGeek was today. Remember, download that SeatGeek mobile app and use the promo code LORockets, and you can get a $20 rebate via mail off of your first ticket purchase from SeatGeek. So as we enter the weekend, again, Game 2 between the Celtics and Cavaliers tonight, Game 3 between the Warriors and Spurs on Saturday evening. Uh, I know it's a little depressing with the Rockets not playing anymore, but it is still basketball. Uh, take it in while you can, because in a month we're not even going to have that for a few more months. And then, of course, uh, the Astros kicking off a 10-game homestand tonight. So, um, yeah, if you want to watch them on TV, or better yet, go out to Minute Maid Park. It's a great time to do that. And, hint, use SeatGeek because, yeah, that LO Rockets promo code can certainly help you if you want to go out to Minute Maid Park and check out baseball's best team, which conveniently also plays in this wonderful city of Houston. So with that said, I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend, and I look forward to chatting with you guys more about the Rockets' potential off-season moves early next week. For now, uh, have a great Friday and look forward to chatting with you guys on Twitter and once again early next week when we get back in the flow right here on Lockdown Rockets. Napa know how.
It takes a lot to get excited about a bag, but most bags can't save you 20% on auto parts. That's 20% off headlamps, 20% off oil filters, 20% off virtually anything you can fit inside the 99-cent Napa reusable bag. So tell your buddies, there's a bag they just have to check out. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa auto parts stores while supplies last. Minimum three items. Exclusions apply. Offer ends 10 17